2 Samuel 2 in your Bibles, please. The title of the sermon, Inquiring of the Lord, in 2 Samuel 2. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we read of kings and leaders in Israel inquiring of the Lord. Often, when we do so, we see kings call for the high priest who would bring the Urim and the Thummim or, or the Ephod. Uh, probably uh, many people suspect that the ephod uh, contained the Urim and the Thummim, which is why we see the differences between the two. And they would bring the Urim and the Thummim and use God's prescribed methods uh, to ask God for wisdom and direction in regard to the way that they should go. Now, sometimes this direction would not necessarily come through the priests. Sometimes it would also come through the prophets that a man would inquire of another man uniquely gifted by God and thus able to discern and understand the will of God, not just for themselves, but also for others. Now, as we translate these concepts into the New Testament, we find that things are are quite different now, aren't they, than they were at that time. As the law is done away with in Christ, it's, it's, it's fulfilled in Christ. It hasn't been abolished, but it's been fulfilled. And as we, uh, as believers, have been given the priesthood of the believer in Christ, we no longer need to go through a spiritual leader to communicate with God. Likewise, the office of the prophet has been done away because we have the complete revelation of God in Jesus Christ through the Holy Scriptures. But we need the Lord's leading today, don't we? Just as much as ever. And today, following our exposition, we're going to consider how it is that the Lord leads us today and where our confidence can rest regarding knowing the will of God. So the title, Inquiring of the Lord, we'll we'll begin by expositing the passage together. And that begins in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 2, where the Bible says, And it came to pass after this, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. So our text opens today following David's lamentation of Saul and Jonathan's death and destruction of the Amalekite who falsely claimed to have killed Saul in mercy. You recall all of those events from Second Samuel chapter 1. David then asks the Lord immediately whether or not he should go up to Judah. And the Lord says, go. So David uh, receives this revelation of the Lord. Yes, go up and go into Judah. And then he asks God further. Where in Judah should I go up? To which the Lord answered him directly that he should go up to Hebron. Now, Hebron was a spiritually and geographically significant city in Judah. It resided near the very center of the tribe's inheritance, and uh, it was in the mountains of Judah. As much of the northern uh, area of Israel had been taken by the Philistines in the battle where Saul died, the Battle of Gibeon, Uh, Hebron would have been a very safe and a secure place for a capital. The history of Hebron in the scriptures is well recorded. It was originally a region called Mamre in the days of Abraham. It was in Mamre that the cave of Machpelah resided where Abraham buried his wife Sarah having taken that uh, land, purchased it from the sons of Heth. During the days of Joshua, Hebron was taken by Caleb and became the inheritance of the family of Caleb. Now, Caleb was of the tribe of Judah, so it was a Judite area, but it was, it, it was the inheritance of the family of Caleb. And David spent much of his time, as he had been fleeing from Saul, in the region of Hebron, uh, a territory which was rocky. Uh, the people were his brethren. It would have been a good place for him to be, uh, and, and so he spent much of his time there. 
So the text continues, and it tells us in verses 2 and 3, David went up thither, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail Nabal's wife, the Carmelite, and his men that were with him did David bring up every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. So recall David has his two wives at this point from his days in the in exile, Ahinoam of Jezreel, Abigail of, of Carmel. And the idea as we see this, this concept that he's bringing his wives with him, that every man is bringing his household with him, is that they're coming not for war, but for occupation with the intent to live, with the intent of, of, of having your family there, bringing up the family with you. Uh, his men came up with him that they, they formally broke ties with the Philistines. They returned to the nation of Israel. They brought their families and their possessions with them, their household with them. That's the idea here. Remember that they had been in the land of the Philistines now for, for a good 16 months. So to leave Ziklag with all of the men, to, with all of the family, with the household, and to come to Hebron, this was a definitive step. This was a big deal. A definitive step of faith, a definitive uh, uh, cutting of ties with this city that they had. Ziklag, of course, it had been uh, burned to the ground, so maybe uh, it wasn't as, as difficult as we might uh, suspect uh, in, in some other context for him to leave. But they're still leaving, and they're coming now into Judah, particularly to the cities of Hebron. And the scriptures tell us that the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David, verse 4, king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. Immediately, it would appear, David is anointed the king of Judah. And the text seems to reflect that this was done, as I mentioned, in very short order. It is an important note, however, that he is only king over the tribe of Judah. See, since the days of Joshua and through the time of the judges, the individual tribes of Israel had always operated more independently than they operated united. If we want to think of it in more familiar terms, we might use the the word state instead of tribe. Each of these tribes of Israel was an independent state that operated entirely within its own authority in a manner of speaking. They had their own leaders. They had their own um, system. God's design was that they would be united by the theocracy centered around the tabernacle so that though they were independent tribes, they functioned under a united law of the theocracy, under a united priesthood, under a, a united religious system. Now, in the days of Saul, the theocracy, uh, a theocracy as a nation directly ruled by God alone through a priesthood, transitioned to what we would call a theonomy, where the nation was united under a common ruler, so not a priest, but under a, a king who had complete authority, but was intended to rule in God's name through the enforcement of God's laws. So in this case, Saul was intended to rule according to the law of God, the law of Moses, and yet he was the one that was in charge, and God would bless him or curse him based upon his obedience, but he was the king. And so that's where we transition from a theocracy where, where really the priests were, were ruling in the name of God, direct rule by God through the priest, to uh, the, the rule of a man in the name of God in, the, in a theonomy. The mindset of the individual tribes, however, as we consider this system, never really left in the day of Saul. They, they, they were generally united, but they, they were still very independent. The tribes were still uniquely independent at this time. And as we consider that, um, we, we might liken it to the United States just you know prior to the Civil War. In, in, during the Civil War, the federal government uh, t- took power 
and uh, asserted that the power of the federal government usurped that of the states. But until that point in our constitutional republic, um, the, the federal government had very minimal powers uh, in order to keep things united and, and, and protected. But then every other right was enumerated under the states for the states to decide what they would have to do. And this is kind of that same idea, that at this point you'd be operating under a united monarchy even with Saul and the theonomy, but, but it was still very individual until such time really of um, partic- uh, in part David, but, but in more so in, in the split between Rehoboam and Jeroboam that the, the, the tribes began to meld a little bit more. So while Judah anointed David to be king, operating under its own authority, the rest of the tribes of Israel were not a part of this decision process. They had no representatives in Hebron, and they did not submit themselves to David's authority. Now, David is the king of Judah. However, as king, he heard that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had gone and retrieved Saul and Jonathan's body from the wall of Bashan, where the Philistines had hung them. Jabesh-Gilead was a city on the east side of Jordan. Remember that there were two and a half tribes on the east side of Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh that functioned on the east side of Jordan. And things were a little bit different for them than for the other tribes, just based upon the separation of Jordan. So Jabesh-Gilead was in Gilead, which is on the east side in that area. And, and, and if you recall, um, though, though the men of Jabesh-Gilead weren't Judites, they, they were very likely Benjamites and uh, very likely extremely close to Saul. Remember back in 1 Samuel, Saul um, said that the Benjamites were the least of the tribes of Israel. When, when Samuel was anointing Saul to be king, he said, Who am I? I am of the least of the tribes of Israel, and I am the least of the families in that tribe. Now, as Saul said that, one of the main reasons why he would assert that concept of him being the least, or the Benjamites being the least of the tribes of Israel was because of an event that took place fairly early on in the book of Judges. Now, we read about it in the very end of the book of Judges, but as you look at the timetable, and if you study it out, you'll find that the events actually took place very early on, probably within the first generation following entrance into the land of Canaan. So some 350 years before Saul was to be um, born or uh, brought into his own, Benjamin had been nearly wiped off the map, completely removed as a tribe. Almost every child of Benjamin was destroyed. Now, the events were were in the days of Judges. As I mentioned, Judges 19 through 21 describe these events, and they describe them surrounding a man who um, lived in Mount Ephraim, and he, as he was sojourning on his way back to bring his concubine back to him uh, and to his family, he ended up in a city of Benjamin called Gibeah. Interestingly enough, Gibeah was Saul's hometown, and so and it was the capital of his kingdom when he was king. And this city at that time, when this man, if you recall, um, went through the city, um, was was completely lost in the sin of sodomy. They were all homosexuals, and he goes into this city and he sojourns for the night. He was going to sleep out in the city, but a man tells him, no, don't do that, come in to me. So he brings the man and his concubine in, and if you remember the story, people surround the house that night and want to effectively rape this man. Uh, Men surround the house and and want to to, uh, sodomize this man. And the guest would not allow for it, and um, so instead um, this man offers his concubine. 
And so they take his concubine and they, they abuse her all night long and she dies on the threshold in the morning. And the man is so upset by this and by this, this wicked action that he cuts her up into pieces and he mails her throughout Israel saying that if any man doesn't come up that he would be cursed because there is sin in Israel that needs to be dealt with. When Israel heard of the atrocities done in that city, the, the sodomy and, and the wickedness, he, call, he calls on Israel to destroy them. They answer that call. And they confront Benjamin, say, telling Benjamin to give up the city of Gibeah. And if they will give up the city of Gibeah, then, they, then, then there won't be a problem. Benjamin refuses and they choose to defend the city of Gibeah rather than allow Gibeah to be given over to the other tribes. And a civil war breaks out. In that war, uh, many terrible things happen, but Benjamin ends up being soundly defeated, so much so that there were only a few hundred men left in existence. They had fled to a cave. Everyone else was dead. The women, the children, everyone had been destroyed. The entire tribe of Benjamin almost was destroyed with the exception of these few hundred men. Now, at that point, Israel feared. They realized what had just happened, and they, they recognized that this tribe is in danger of being wiped out, and that, that's not what they wanted. And this fear was compounded by the fact that when this atrocity happened, every tribe and all that had, had responded to this call, they had made a vow that they would never give any of their daughters uh, to the tribe of Benjamin. And this was a vow unto the Lord, a vow that could not be broken without cursing. And so here they're in a very tough spot. They have made this vow that they will not give any of their daughters unto the tribes of Benjamin, but there's only a few hundred men left in the tribe, and they need to procreate. They need someone to, to carry on the line. So they began looking for a solution, and the solution they found was the city of Jabesh-Gilead. This city had refused to answer the call to fight against Benjamin. They did not come up with the other tribes to fight as such, they had forsaken their kinsmen and they were under this curse, but they also had not taken this vow that the other tribes had taken to not give their daughters to Benjamin. As a result of, of this disloyalty and in order to solve this problem, the, the nation of Israel came and attacked Jabesh Gilead and destroyed them utterly. However, this text tells us that they spared 400 young virgins who were put in a position where the Benjamites would come and would choose a wife and and thus take unto them wives of the children of Israel. And in doing so, um, they were now in a position where they could procreate and the tribe would be spared. So that happens. And the tribe is indeed spared. And so because of that, whereas uh, before they had several thousand in the tribe, they had to basically start at zero again and work their way back up. They must have been significantly smaller than the other tribes. We would also understand, however, that the city of Jabesh-Gilead was likely deeply vested in the Benjamites because of this. Maybe they were all Benjamites. Maybe they weren't all Benjamites, but that, that the, this interaction would have been very important to them. Also, if you recall, early in the book of 1 Samuel, the first act that Saul did as the king in Israel, when he had been anointed king, he heard that, that Jabesh-Gilead was... Um, going to be attacked. The Amalekites had surrounded them and given them an ultimatum. Jabesh-Gilead sought for help. When he heard that Jabesh-Gilead was in trouble, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He called Israel together. They united and they saved Jabesh-Gilead from the, the attack of the Amalekites. So there's a great deal of love that these men would have had for Saul and for his family uh, in many contexts. 
And so David blesses them. His first act as king is to bless the men of Jabesh-Gilead, to bless those who had treated the former king Saul and his son with respect and honor. And in doing so, he incurred the favor of Benjamin, but he also reflected once again the love that he had for Saul and his determination to be at peace with the tribes of Israel. Now David's message to them continues in verses 6 and 7, And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, David said, and I also will requite you this kindness, because ye have done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant. For your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. David tells uh, them that he intends to reward them for their kindness to the house of Saul. And he also calls for them to, to let their hands be strengthened and to be valiant. It seems as though what David's actually doing here is asking them to, for, for their loyalty to him as king. Seeing their deep connection to the house of Benjamin and Saul, you can only imagine how difficult it would have been for them to accept David's authority over the authority of the surviving members of Saul's house. And we actually never read the outcome of this appeal. Uh, The text never tells us whether or not they accepted it, uh, but it seems unlikely at least until the end of this this seven and a half year reign in Hebron as um, the text never tells us that anyone other than Judah followed David as um, in anointing him king. Well, verses 8 and 9 reveal unto us the reason that David's appeal really even matters at all. The text tells us, But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and made him king over Gilead, and over the Asherites, and over Jezreel, and over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. So now we, we have Abner come on the scene, and he takes Saul's son Ishbosheth, one of his surviving sons, and makes him king. Now we've seen Abner before. Uh, in 1 Samuel 14:50, he was introduced to us as Saul's uncle. When Saul comes back from being anointed king, Abner confronts him. And so he is, is Saul's un- uncle. And uh, this would make Abner the great uncle of Ishbosheth. Abner had been the captain of Saul's army. Uh, Saul had uh, um, had trusted him and and now he takes Saul's son and makes him king over all Israel we'll see that, that in, in many ways it seems as though Abner is doing this so that he can have power, um, that he's kind of propping up Ishbosheth, who's a weak man, as kind of a vassal king. But at the same time, um, uh, he is making Ishbosheth the king. So Abner does this coronation, and the scriptures tell us he does it in Mahanaim, which again would be on the east side of, of Jordan, which is an interesting choice, and makes him king over all of Israel. Now, Mahanaim is, is not all that significant in Scripture. We read about this location only in Genesis 32.2, and that's where it's given the name. It's, it's Jacob, in fact, that gives it the name Mahanaim, and the name means double camp. As Jacob was returning from Laban to meet Esau, he, he makes an encampment, and he sees a group of angels encamping with him. And he sees that encampment next to his own, and so he calls the place a double camp because the the encampment of the angels was with his encampment. So it was now called Mahanaim. So these two kingdoms are established. Notice verse 10. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. Thus we see Ishbosheth's kingdom established. Notice verse 11. 
And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, there's a little bit of a difficulty presented here, which no one is quite sure how to explain. We have some theories. The Bible says that David ruled in Hebron over Judah exclusively for seven and a half years. But in verse 10, the Bible says Ishbosheth only reigned two years over Israel. Now, this leaves five and a half years of uncertainty in Israel with regard to a king, and we're not quite sure how this played out. There have been various attempts to explain this. What we know is that the Bible does not contradict itself, so it's not a contradiction in the Bible, it's simply a lack of our understanding. So, so the first explanation could be, um, perhaps, that Ishbosheth reigned two years until war began with David, and so they, they only counted the two years before the war began. Uh, but this doesn't really make sense because David reigned for seven and a half years, and that must have included the war with, with Ishbosheth. So why would the, the author include the war with Ishbosheth in David's reign, but not in Ishbosheth's reign? So that doesn't really make sense. A second explanation is that David reigned over Israel, the entire Israel. So uh, he reigned over Judah exclusively for two, two years, and then over Judah and Israel from Hebron for five and a half years after the death of Ishbosheth. Um, and yet before moving to Jerusalem. But this doesn't really make sense either because the text explicitly states that David reigned over Judah in Hebron for seven and a half years. So, so that doesn't really make sense either. With that in, in mind, probably the best explanation is that Ishbosheth didn't actually begin ruling in Israel until about five years after Saul died. There's nothing in the text that demands that Ishbosheth was made king right away. And in fact, we might even understand this to, to make sense because it may have taken some time for Abner to reclaim the land that had been lost to the, to the Israelites or, or stabilize the country and unite them under a common banner. It wouldn't necessarily be unheard of to, to need five years to unite the kingdom after such a devastating loss to restore order before calling a king. So, Ishbosheth reigns, and most likely he reigns for the final two years of the seven and a half years that David reigned uh, over Judah in Hebron. And the text tells us that he began his reign at age 40, so he, he only reigned from age 40 to age 42. Transitioning to our application today, and consistent with what I told you in the introduction, we're going to um, go all the way back to verse 1, and as we do so, we're going to consider this concept of inquiring of the Lord. The Bible tells us on multiple occasions that David inquired of the Lord and that the Lord answered him and told him the way that he should go. I've mentioned in passing on several occasions, particularly as we were walking through 1 Samuel, that we too can seek the Lord for guidance today. Now, a while back, I preached a message on the will of God. It was in November and as I did so, I focused heavily on the importance of God's word in the process of understanding and discerning God's will. The word of God forms the very foundation for the will of God in our lives. But what I didn't present, and perhaps should have, is what happens when we align ourselves with God's will through God's word. And I think I didn't, uh, because... Uh, I, I tend to take this step, we might say, I tend to take it for granted, and I think many in our circles do. 
we understand that the Word of God is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path, and we recognize that when we're walking in fellowship with the Lord, it opens fellowship with the Lord, that um, the, the lines of communication open when we're walking in fellowship and we're walking in obedience to the Word of God, and so the Lord directs us in the way that we should go, and He directs us through the Spirit of God. And yet, I didn't bring that up as explicitly, and after talking with some people and, and um, spending some time in prayer ha- after having preached that sermon, I feel as though there was probably a um, uh, some 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 elements that I took for granted that shouldn't be taken for granted when I teach about what it means to discern the will of God. And so the Word of God forms that foundation, and yet when we seek God's will through God's Word, what happens deeply correlates to what we see throughout the Old Testament. When we consider methods of biblical inquiry, the Bible presents two generalized methods of biblical inquiry. In both Testaments, we find testimony of two sources of divine knowledge, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, both of these roles were fulfilled through the priest and the prophet. The priests were charged primarily with the responsibility of the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, taking the the Torah, taking the Word of God, and getting it into the ears of the people and teaching them how to live in light of it. But they also sought the will of God through the ephod, the urim, and the thummim, which is where God explicitly speaks. From what we understand, it looks like the urim and the thummim were kind of a yes or no answer type thing. You ask yes or no questions, you get yes or no answers regarding the will of the Lord. The prophets of God were charged with the responsibility of of declaring the word of God. So whereas the priest was intended to be the regular teacher of the word of God, the prophet was intended to be the man that is raised up to declare the word of God and call people back to the word of God when they strayed. But he uh, had a far more um, direct revelatory role. Whereas the priest's role was primarily word-based with some of the Spirit of God through the ephod, the Urim, and the Thummim, the prophets of God were heavily spirit-based, seeking the will of God through direct revelation, declaring the direct revelation of the Word of God, of the will of God, um, and, and declaring the Word of God, but also um, doing the miracles and the signs and the wonders as they did so to validate the Word of God. Now, according to the Scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, neither the prophet or the priest is an institution that functions in that manner today. First Peter 2.9 tells us, uh, as Peter is speaking to believers, but ye are a, ro- are a cho- chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The scriptures tell us that we, as believers in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, fulfill God's will that every man would be a priest of God, a doctrine which is known today as the priesthood of the believer. This doctrine does not imply that we don't need teaching today, that we don't need men to guide us into the truth of God's word, but rather that through the Spirit of God, um, the only mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ. That man need not go through another religious system, that man need not go through a fallible mediator, to have a relationship with God. Now, this was established the moment that Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in two. That veil of the temple was rent, indicating that the way to the holiest of all, as Hebrews says, was now open. 
that there was no mediator between God and man save the one who had just died on the cross, the man Christ Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 9 explains to us that Jesus Christ has become that exclusive mediator between God and man, that every man has the capacity to enter into the presence of God, a privilege which was formerly reserved for the high priest alone. Now, the scriptures also indicate that the role of the prophet as a man who now delivers new revelation is no longer necessary because God has, has completed his revelation. He has spoken unto us once for all through his word. We consider this through several passages, first being Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where the Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Worlds, excuse me. This passage directly contrasts God's former use of the prophets in time past with how God is working today, which is by speaking through his Son. And as we consider the concept of speaking through the Son of God, well, what does this mean? Because we don't hear the voice of the Son of God audibly today. So what does it mean that God in these last days is speaking unto us, has spoken unto us by his Son? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 tells us, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, Paul speaking to the church, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets. In the New Testament, God spoke. Jesus Christ, he commissioned 12 men. And these were his apostles. They were his messengers. And as we look through the New Testament, we find that these men were given apostolic authority. Not just the twelve, but there were other apostles as well, as we know of at least two more. Paul and Barnabas, both explicitly called apostles in the scripture. And these were men commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to represent him and to carry with, with them divine authority. And as we consider this, in the Old Testament, the divine authority rested with the Word of God and the prophets of God. In the New Testament, the divine authority rested with the Word of God and the apostles of God. The prophets wrote the, the, the Old Testament. The apostles wrote the New Testament. And Ephesians 2 tells us that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. A cornerstone in a building is a stone that must be perfect. It must be square and level. And if you make the cornerstone square and level, then you build the rest of the foundation on the basis of that cornerstone. That cornerstone becomes the, the gauge, the cannon by which everything else is, is, is set. And so if Jesus is the cornerstone, then he is the perfectly square stone by which everything else is set. And then the apostles and the prophets were raised up to write and to minister within the template of the cornerstone, to take the words of Christ and to put them in writing. Therefore, we have the writings of God through the apostles and prophets that can rightly be said to be the word of God, the message of Jesus Christ to the generations. We continue our understanding of God's revelation through the apostles and prophets in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, 
that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. So the mysteries of Christ in other ages not revealed is now revealed through the combination of new revelation by means of God's apostles combined with an illuminated, a Holy Spirit illuminated understanding of previous revelation through God's prophets. And that's the idea. The prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament, bringing them together creates a completed revelation. It unlocks the mysteries that the Old Testament presented but did not understand through the New Testament writings of the apostles. And many of the concepts in the Old Testament are not understandable outside of the interpretation of the New Testament. The Old Testament and New Testament are symbiotic. They demand one another. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. You can't understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. Those churches and pastors that say the Old Testament is not necessary, that don't go into the Old Testament, are doing a grave disservice to their people. Because the Old Testament is essential to understanding the New. And so we find, as, as we, we see Jude write in Jude verse 3, he says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith, here it is, which was once delivered unto the saints. That word once, hapags, uh, literally means once for all or only one time. Jude says that the faith was given one time. It was delivered once for all. It was delivered. It's not an, a, uh, an ever-changing faith. Uh, the faith as we know it was established in the first century and continues today under the very same expectations, teachings, and standards of that day. Uh, our faith does not adapt. Our faith is once for all delivered unto the saints. There's no need for, for further revelation of God's divine will for man's future, for this has been fully established in the canon of Scripture. And so we see the preeminence of Scripture, that Scripture does not change, that God's completed revelation has been given to us. We don't need further divine revelation of God's will today. But what we do not mean by this is that the Word of God is sufficient to live life outside of the Spirit of God. God had given the nation of Israel in the law everything they needed to conform themselves to God's will for them and to secure God's divine blessing. God's law would, would secure for them all of the blessings of God, the protection of God, all of those uh, overarching uh, recognition. It told them how to live their daily lives as far as conducting transactions and such. But what the law of God did not do is it didn't always give the nitty-gritty. The law of God did not tell David whether or not he should go to battle. The law of God did not tell David whether or not he should go up to Judah or what city or region in Judah he should go up to. For that, David needed to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord provided means by which for, for, for men to do that. When David needed to know the specifics of his path and then trust the Lord to tell him the specifics, he went to the priest or the prophet and God's ordained means of inquiry. He couldn't just open the Torah and find out if he should go up to Judah. He needed the Urim and the Thummim. He needed a prophet to say, yes, go. Most likely he used the Urim and the Thummim to get the yes or no answer as to whether or not he should go up to Judah. And then perhaps he used the prophet Gad, who we know was with him, in order to understand where in Judah he should go. But here's the thing. We no longer have a Urim and a Thummim. 
we no longer have men walking around in validity. There are men walking around saying that they have the word of God in their ears, but, but we don't have that in validity today in, in, in that same way. So how do we tap into this need? The need for daily guidance. We have all the guidance that we need to know in how to live our lives, how to structure our lives for spiritual and, and, and physical success. We have all the guidance we need in the Word of God in regard to the moral expectations that confront us regarding personal holiness, interpersonal relationship, the framework for living. But what about the daily questions? Should I buy that house or should I not? Should I marry that person or should I not? Should I buy that car or should I not? What, what do you want from me, Lord? How, how should I handle this particular situation? Things wherein we really need guidance, decisions that really matter. Are, are we just on our own for those? Well, indeed we are not. And just as God has given us sufficient revelation of his moral expectation through the word of God, God likewise has given us another tool, just like he gave David, Another tool which guides us into God's specific will regarding the decisions which we need to make, but to which the Bible gives no particular insight. It's, if it's not a, a decision that, that um, you have a, a particular moral boundary, you can't just choose. Many decisions in life, we say, okay, this is right, this is wrong, but what if they're both okay? Well, then which one does God want? You, uh, uh, and so, so when we go to, as an example, illustration, when we go to marry that person, We first go to the Word of God for discernment and for wisdom. You understand what the Bible says about marriage, how important and permanent it is. So so you go to God's Word. You understand that you should not be unequally yoked, either with an unbeliever or with a believer that's not headed in the same direction as you. You get that. You've studied the Word of God. You compare the character of this this would-be spouse against the character, uh, 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 biblical qualities that God presents in His Word. You seek wise counsel from others, and you've got a generalized understanding that this is right. But you know, there are other people that it might be right too. Other women, other men who who would fulfill all of those biblical qualities. So is it God's will? And this is where the Spirit of God comes in. The Bible teaches us that the Spirit of God has been given to us as a teacher. We know that this means that the Spirit of God illuminates the Bible to us and allows us to understand it. But the Spirit of God also actively guides us in the way that we should go under this one condition, that you are aligned with God's word, that you are abiding in Christ. 1 John 2.27 tells us, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The scriptures are speaking in 1 John 2.27 about the fullness of joy that we can have through fellowship. Uh, that's the, the theme of First John. And in First John 2, as um, John is teaching about walking in fellowship with the Lord, he tells us that the Spirit of God is active in our lives, guiding us into all truth. Not only the truths of the doctrines of God's Word, but the path that we should take. Psalm 119.105 tells us that the Word of God is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our paths. That as we position ourselves properly with regard, with disposition to the Word of God, the path of God illuminates before us. But what this verse is telling us 
is that as we do right before God, we keep sin out of our lives, we maintain fellowship with God in Christ. As we maintain this fellowship, the pathways of communication are open between us and God. And when this happens, the Holy Spirit of God begins, and here's the word I'll use, He begins speaking to us. Now, I'm not talking about audible voices here. I'm not talking about those sorts of things. But those of you who are led by the Spirit of God understand this. You get this concept. You know what we're talking about when you talk about the Holy Spirit of speaking to you. Divine impressions, clear, definitive impressions, clear leading, obvious communication to you by the Holy Spirit regarding the way that you should go. And these lines of communication are naturally opened unto you when you are walking in fellowship with Christ and you have aligned yourself with the expectations of God's Word. And so you begin to be led by the Spirit of God. Now, I can't quantify this. We, we can't quantify this, can we? We can see examples in the scripture where the Holy Spirit allowed men to know things and to understand things. We see preposterous and false examples of this in our culture and in, in, in um, church culture, uh, oftentimes in charismatic circles, where they insist that God is telling them things about other people's personal lives, that they're seeing visions of people sinning, um, that, that they're, you know, they're smacking people on the head to heal and the f- fish flopping on the ground, other extra-biblical nonsense. But there is a middle ground here where the Spirit of God is actively speaking to us, actively prompting us unto action. And every believer has experienced this. You, if you're a believer, you've experienced this at least in, in the simplest of ways. Someone is, has been laid on your heart and mind and you begin praying for them. And then you end, end up calling them only to find out that they have been, had a medical emergency or a great need. And there you were praying for them right during their need. You're prompted to give someone money only to find out they were in desperate need. Uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit is this. When you sit under a sermon and, and there's conviction in your heart, that's the Holy Spirit speaking unto you. The Word of God is the source by which the, the it, it's the tool that the Spirit of God is able to use to convict you, but it's the Spirit of God that's bringing these things to mind. Have you ever seen someone get saved and immediately they start to remove things from their lives and you're like, wow, I haven't even gotten that far with them yet in discipleship. I didn't even teach them that. And they start removing things because they're convicted about them. That's the Holy Spirit speaking. That's the Holy Spirit doing His work. We cannot discount this because it is essential. The Word of God is important, but but this daily, moment by moment, what must I do? This is the Spirit of God. Now, for many believers, this is an unfortunately rare occurrence where you only, uh, you only seek the Spirit or listen to the Spirit of God when there's a major problem. Like Saul, you're so busy living your own life that you never take time to ask God what you should do, or you're so far out of fellowship with God that these lines of communication are so deeply clogged that really there's, there's no way you can even hear the Spirit. But David was a man who took the time to ask. He aligned himself with the Word of God. The, the lines of fellowship were open. And so he heard the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him. And as, as we talk about the day-to-day, what we should do, this is how we are led. We ask God the Father in the name of God the Son, and God the Spirit answers our prayers speaks to our hearts, gives us definitive leading in the way that we should go. You don't need to leave the questions of your daily decisions up to chance. You don't need to wonder if you're going the right way. If you are walking in fellowship with God and you ask God for guidance and then you stop and you listen, God's Spirit will speak. His Spirit will lead. You will be led in the way that you should go. Now, not every impression a man receives, be warned, is from the Holy Spirit. 
These impressions can be from yourself, and they can also be from false spirits. So this communication will and must always be in line with the revealed Word of God, and this is essential. We cannot abandon the Word of God, and this is where some movements go wrong, is they start to listen for the Spirit of God apart from the Word of God, and that's when demonic influences can come in and start speaking in His place, because you're not validating the, the, the message, you're not validating the impressions, you're not validating what you believe to be the will of God with the Word of God. As we continue with that illustration of marriage, if a man says God tells him to marry a girl who, with whom he would be unequally yoked, you can be sure that this wasn't actually God who said it because the spirit of truth will never contradict the word of truth. If a man says that God told him to marry a girl when his spiritual authorities all say he shouldn't, you can be sure that it isn't actually God saying it because the authority on the authority of God's word, the spirit of truth will not work in his heart without also working in the hearts of his spiritual authorities. If, if God is in it. So what do we need to do when we need to inquire of the Lord? Well, first, we must know what God's Word has to say. The manner of biblical inquiry. First, discerning study. You've got to know what God's Word has to say. Second, godly counsel. Seek the advice of others. And third, and I don't mean this necessarily in an order, you definitely want to study and know what God's Word says first. But all throughout this process, you're praying this last part is just as important. It, it's, it's essential. You need to ask God expecting Him to answer. Everything about prayer in the Bible expects that when we ask, God will answer. God says, ask and it shall be given to you, but He also says, seek and you shall find, right? And so, on November 29th, I preached this message on the will of God. And as I did so, I spoke heavily on aligning with God's word which is the biblically documented way of opening the lines of communication between you and the Spirit of God. But I did not enough emphasize the role of the Spirit of God in this process. For some here today, perhaps you have heard many messages like that before, but like even my own preaching, had not filled in this final gap, the ability that you have to be led of the Spirit of God. But Romans 8.14 tells us that as many as are the children of God, they are led by the Spirit of God. And in your decision-making, you ought to be led by the Spirit of God. Now, on November 29th, I gave you a list uh, based on the autobiography of George Mueller about how he discerns the Spirit of God. And this was a man who's worth listening to. I don't often put man's words up on the screen or give you man's words. I like to stick to God's word. It's safer for me and for you. But this man um, is, is, is um, a man worth listening to in this realm. And as I gave you that list, I gave you six points. Get your own will out of the way. Don't trust your heart and feelings. Seek the will of the Spirit in connection with the Word. Consider providential circumstances. Pray specifically and directly. And then make a deliberate judgment and then keep testing it with prayer. Now in this list, um, all the, these all make sense. That you get your will out of the way. You submit yourself to God. You don't trust your heart. You don't trust your emotions. You seek the will of God in connection to the Word. The, the will of the Spirit in connection with the Word. In other words, you see what the Word of God has to say and you align yourself with every biblical principle. You consider providential circumstances, opening and closing of doors, the advice of others. But in, in, verse, in, in uh, point number five, pray specifically and directly. This is, this is the point where, where George Mueller encourages us to invoke the Spirit. And he, he says it this way. He kinda, it's it's kind of muddied in the same way that, that uh, many times in, in our circles 
the Spirit of God gets muddied, including my preaching a few months ago. And he said this, uh, he said, I ask God in prayer to reveal his will to me aright. When you ask God in prayer for something, you do so expecting an answer. And that's the idea. You get your will out of the way. You refuse to be led by emotion. You align yourself with God's word. You seek obvious open doors. And then you directly ask God for his will. And how are you going to get that answer? Well, you're going to get that answer through the Spirit of God. If you're walking in fellowship with the Lord, which you must have done if you've already aligned yourself with God's word, if you're genuinely seeking God's way and not your own, if you have uh, taken your will out of the way, there's no reason why God would not explicitly direct your spirit into his, his exact will for you. I can testify to the truth of the leading of the Spirit of God in my own life. And the more we seek Him, the more we find Him. The more we learn to listen, the better we'll be able to hear. And if we will seek Him and find Him, then we can know that our decisions are God's will. And more so, we can know that if we go the way He directs, even if it doesn't make complete sense, that we will be led into the exact results that God has desired for us. You know, all throughout David's ministry, David inquired of the Lord, discerned God's direction and acted upon it. And he was blessed. The times of greatest failure in his life were when David, in a fit of selfishness, failed to inquire of the Lord. The same could be said of Moses and Joshua and every man of God. When they failed to ask God, their greatest failures arose. And so it is with us as well. If we're going to find success, then we need to know the way that God would have us to go. And in this regard, God has not left you comfortless. He has given you of his spirit to speak to you, to directly tell you the way that you should go. So how are you doing today? Do you know what it is to truly be led of the spirit of God? Have you heard the voice of the spirit of God leading you, maybe to speak or not to speak, to act or not to act? Have you ever deliberately asked for God's leading and then actually listened and found God's answer? No, there's no set formula for this, but it is definitive in its power and in its potential. Maybe you are one of the many Christians today who has walked through life and you're pretty much just winging it. You want God's way, but you've never known how to find it. There's a better way than simply your best guess. God has given us every resource through His Word, through His people, through His Spirit, to make every decision a blessed decision and the one that God would have for us. But like any resource, we must tap into it if it's going to benefit us. We might have all the oil in the world under our feet, but if we don't collect it, it's no good. We might have all the apples in the world in our trees, but if we don't collect them, they're no good to us. We might have the full power of the Spirit of God in us, but if we don't ask and listen, then it's no good to us. David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, told him where to go, he did it, and he was blessed. May God help us to do the same.